Hello, Internet friends, and welcome to Love Hate Relationship, an opinionated podcast for opinionated people. I'm Andy Bowell. And I'm Alex Ruiz. And as ever, we are here to brighten your days, anger your souls, and tell you how to live your lives in that order. And Andy, I know this might seem kind of funky given that we just talked about slasher movies last episode. Okay. But my thought for douchebag buffering here is an interesting experience I had this morning. So last night, you and I watched uh, a really interesting horror movie mm. called Barbarian. And it was, yeah, Barbarian is buck wild. It, it, it terrified me. It made me laugh. It, it, go, go watch Barbarian. And the less you know about it, the better, other than it, it has the spoops. Yes. So I'm not going to, like, dive into Barbarian itself. But I had the experience today of I was scrolling online this morning and... Uh, a friend of mine just was posting and said, so we watched Barbarian yesterday and I really liked the first half of it and then dot, 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 didn't say anything else there. And then underneath it just wrote, what a piece of garbage. Mm. And I sat there and I was just sitting here like, okay. Um, and, and I don't need to spoil any part of Barbarian to say in the course of the movie, there is a very sudden shift. For the first half of the movie, you're following one particular set of characters, and then a spoopy thing happens, and then suddenly we are on to what seems like a completely different storyline that comes back to intersect with the first one like 20 minutes later. Right. But that midpoint, I understand her saying that there was this change at the midpoint, and I'm sitting here going like, okay, I understand this movie pulling you out, but I had such a different experience of it. You had such a different experience of it. And I guess what I want to talk about for this douchebag buffer is when you run into those situations where people whose taste you genuinely trust, and I trust this friend's taste. She's a horror movie buff. Sure. Um, when people whose taste you trust just have absolutely counter opinions to yours... And just how you how you navigate that when you get a review or a recommendation or you give one and someone's just like, yeah, that didn't fucking work for me. I, yeah, I, I at the end of the day, I appreciate it, I think, because it helps me know that I am not just sycophantically yes-anding someone else's creative opinions and vice versa. Um I've, I've run into this with um, one or two different like anime shows that people whose opinions I very much trust have been like, oh my God, this is amazing. This is like, you need to watch this. And then I gave it like four episodes and was like, I, I can't follow you on this one. Um, that's happened with movies that's happened with music i'm sure it's happened with books i mean funny enough you and i ha have the long-standing disagreement about the movie green room yes because it's a movie that you absolutely love have seen several times um when you did it on your other podcast cult fiction shameless plug yeah um you know you espoused how much you absolutely adored this movie and i watched it i yeah. watched it with stephanie when she watched it for your podcast and I remember watching it and just going, like, it's fine. The acting in it is good. There's a lot of script choices that don't make sense to me. Mm -hmm. And I kind of don't like. And I feel undercut 
what could be a really I, like I watched Green Room and I was like, this is a good movie that is like stuffed into the shell of a great movie. Like there's potential right. for a great movie here and it's unrealized. Whereas I watched Green Room and was like, this is a phenomenal movie that is like vastly underappreciated and under talked about. Yeah. I think it is rated. Yeah. You think it is underrated. <laughs> I think it is rated. Right. And, and I trust your opinion. Like if you told me going in, oh yeah, Green Room is this fantastic movie. The premise is really interesting. Um, you know, the tension is really well done. There's a little bit of political commentary in there. Like if you if you run down all those points, I see where you are feeling that. And then I watched it and I went, well, I'm whelmed. Sure, yeah. And, and so yeah, the way I go about it is just like I don't I don't care about any property any media well i don't care about it so strongly enough that like i have to base my enjoyment of it on someone else's enjoyment of it you know there's there's no there's no show movie whatever that like somebody else could say i thought that was fucking garbage and it like shatters my entire reality and oh god you're right it was fucking garbage how did i not see that it's more that the fact that someone is analyzing a thing and, and key here's they analyze it critically and fairly they can still come with a difference of opinion yeah i just kind of enjoy that process because that is the way culture can grow and prosper is through being different. If everybody, everybody who likes the same thing and says they like the same thing is how we get to the MCU just being as factory produced as it is these days. It's interesting. It's, it's how we get network crime syndicated television shows because mm -hmm. it's something that reaches the widest common denominator audience then you just kind of make the same thing over and over again because everybody at least says that they like it which eventually really boils down your end product and is culturally less interesting to me than i want there to be fucking crazy weird shit that is like not for everybody but the people who do like it love it which is why i have a cult movie podcast <laughs> One last question on this topic, and then we can start the episode proper. Formal critique, stuff like professional critics. Where does that factor in for you into this discussion? And do you weigh like the opinions of, like say your peers who you know have experience with and like similar things to you, do you weigh that higher or lower than some critics or other critics or all critics or no critics? Um, and and I, I'll, I'll mention this explicitly um, because I had the I had the interesting experience of just coincidentally running into two situations. One is um, a writer named Scott Woods, who I've talked to you about several times, uh, who dabbles a little bit in movie criticism. His his day job is he's a librarian. He's also a poet and an essayist, um, and he does critiques on music and movies. Um, I tr he's someone whose movie opinions and specifically horror opinions I trust very, very much. He is the only other person I've ever met whose favorite movie is The Thing, other mm, than New York, other okay. than you. And he 
wrote this really short but really like impassioned recommendation for the new Guillermo del Toro Cabinet of Curiosity show. And I sent that to you and I was like, okay, if nothing else, this dude's critique, because I trust his critique, is going to sell it for me. Now, I have disagreed with Scott Woods on stuff before. I also came across a review of the latest Carly Rae Jepsen album from Anthony Fantano, who is YouTube's, like, I would argue the best music critic on YouTube. Yeah. And he and I disagree about that album because he gave it like a like a high five, low six. And I'm I don't think it's Carly Rae Jepsen's best album, but I would rate it higher than he does. Sure. I think he gives very valid critiques of it. But I disagree with him. And generally speaking, I have more agreed with Fantano than I don't agree with him. So I'm finding myself in a space where I am, you know, picking and choosing the critics I listen to. And I also pick and choose the friends I listen to. So that's my perspective of this. I'm curious on yours. Yeah, I mean, I I don't think... I, I, I think it's impossible not to at least be influenced. And there certainly are a couple of entities. I'm running them through my head now. And it's funny because they're all basically critics who are about the same age as me who have broken into various media spaces. You know, the, the anime guy is, he goes by mother's basement on YouTube. And I, I agree with nine out of 10 of his opinions. I'm thinking of people like Jay Stoobs or straw hat goofy who are TikTok movie reviewers who have gotten to a point where like they're being invited to MCU red carpet events because their opinions carry such cachet. Yeah. But again, like, I, I think it's easier for these people to convince me something is bad ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Like, if, if, if Jay Stubes talks about what a piece of shit whatever movie is, I'm like, okay, that's probably a piece of shit. Mm-hmm. But I find more somebody saying, oh, I really liked something. I go in and I'm like, yeah, it's fine. You know what my movie is? Us. Us, Jordan Peele's second horror film, which I know you've seen. Yes. You know, absolutely adored critically, and people were saying it's just as good as Get Out. And I walked out of it being like, I think it was fine. I really didn't think the twist was that interesting or made sense, but it, whatever. Have I watched that movie again since then? Yeah. Can yeah. I still enjoy Lupita Nyong'o and Jordan Peele? Yeah. Yeah. I think I liked. I didn't like Us as much as I liked Get Out, but I liked Us more than I think you did. Yeah. So it's. It, but back to my point. Mostly things that are bad or that I won't like, the people in my spaces are not talking about anyway. Mm, okay. So I sit here and go. I haven't heard of this horror movie and I am definitely like plugged into horror movie Twitter. Yeah. This probably isn't that great. This probably is like a really fastly made cash grab piece of crap. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. I love that. And I also just realized as you were talking that the whole reason I was interested in watching Barbarian was because I listened to a really, really glowing review of it. Yeah. So I guess balance your criticism with your recommendations, your friends and your critiques. And if you can be, 
it's always great to be the person that people come to asking for recommendations too. Oh, for sure. But at the end of the day, don't don't let anyone tell you what you should or should not like. Yeah, I like lots of very, very objectively bad things. Absolutely. Speaking of liking things, but also bad things. <laughs> welcome to love-hate relationship, everybody. Um, our format is pretty straightforward. After a little bit of a douchebag buffer, one of us talks about something we love. The other one of us talks about something we hate. And then we take a relationship question from either you, our lovely audience, or the internet. And Andy, I think I have the love this time. You do indeed. All right, sweet. And uh, any of you reading this title might be very, very confused as to what the hell I'm talking about. Because um, I am deliberately using the acronym. Okay. <laughs> like an ass. So, Andy, I know you were always primarily a fin film guy, but you did enough work in the production sphere from at least the time of your education all the way to being the audio engineer of this very podcast. So I want to ask you, can you describe the earliest interaction you ever had with recording or editing audio? This will be a great segue into my topic. Okay. Bonus point, have you ever have you ever worked with or had any experience with analog audio recording? And I'll I'll go ahead and, and spoil that part now. No. Interesting. Um, okay. Like you say, I'm I'm a film guy before that, I was an acting guy. I didn't really get into the technical audio work side of things until like early college, late high school. The earliest thing I can think of was like Probably just being a bored theater kid, recording on iRecorder or whatever, some you know very proprietary comes with the computer audio recording system. Me singing Rent or or whatever, you know, just doing sure. like doing crappy audio covers and then not even having really under any understanding to like process or compress the audio or do really anything to it other than like oh, okay i'll move the microphone closer to me so it might sound better um yeah i i do the editing for this show and i've i've learned a bit through college and just through necessity of being the audio engineer but you were radio and tv major right i was a radio and tv major but famously by the time we got to my audio class i had already basically nailed an internship it was my final semester and i had massive senioritis and like <laughs> almost failed that class and and fucked up my entire plan all right so <laughs> okay so this will be fun. I, I appreciate that. I, I was really curious about the uh, analog side of things because I had, I don't think I've ever told, told, I don't think I've ever talked about this on the podcast and I don't even know if I've ever told you about this. I was uh, a morning announcements kid. Mm. I did it in the fifth grade and then I did it again in middle school and doing like the morning announcements thing, uh, especially in middle school, those were whole ass classes. And apart from doing the morning announcements every morning, we also, as pro as a project or as regular projects would do basically like short films and learn to edit. And the equipment that we had at that time when I was in middle school, we had analog recording tech. Like sure. we recorded, we video recorded to tape, we audio recorded to tape and we edited it with a very basic analog uh, system. Which makes sense, yeah. yeah. Thinking about the time and thinking about like 
This was Florida, Florida yeah. public school. Yeah, and like I think not long after they did get digital stuff because it was becoming a little bit more available. But I have the tiniest little like middle school experience with analog audio tech. Yeah. So this could very possibly be a niche topic for some. But uh, I have what I hope will be a unifying message with it, if I can get started. Okay. Uh, my topic here uh, is ubiquitous DAWs, or digital audio workstations. Which I just got to tell you, just when you, that popped up in my email as the title, the first thing that went through my head is, okay, is this a copycat of Thelonious Monk? I hate you. <laughs> that is the worst. Oh my god, that's that's beyond a death. That's a grandfather joke. Yeah, Jesus enough. Christ. Please continue. Uh, we'll start with the basic definition. A DAW, and I'm going to refer to them as DAWs throughout this because it's too much of a fucking mouthful. But it is a digital audio workstation. The easiest way to think of this is a software interface that allows you to capture and edit audio. It is more or less composed of four parts. You have a computer, and that can be a little nebulous um, because it can also include a phone or a tablet. Sure. But you have a computer device, a sound card or similar audio processor, which is normally part of the computer. Right. Um, actual editing software and at least one input vector. That could be a microphone, a MIDI keyboard, a DI box for a musical instrument, any of these qualify. Which, yeah, I mean, we have the four parts right here. That's how we're doing this podcast. But I can think in my previous job, which was, you know, at a boutique video production company, the uh, sound booth there, which was connected to one of the edit suites and didn't even go into the computer. It went into a DI box that then went into the computer and was, you know, a whole thing. Yeah. For those of you who don't know, a DI box is a device that basically takes that signal, that, that audio signal, and converts it in from one format to another. I play guitar and bass. Both of those use what are called uh, quarter-inch cables, which are basically the connector from a guitar to an amplifier. Yeah. But if I plug either the instrument or the amplifier into a DI box, it can convert it into an XLR cable, which is a different format that can more easily go into a PA system or a computer. So it's just a converter. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to keep this as like non-technical as possible sure. and only hitting those basic points. Fair enough. Um, so the earliest attempts at actual proper DAWs were actually back in the 1970s. Soundstream, which produced the first commercially available digital recorders, released something called the Digital Editing Software in 1978. It ran on of-the-period hardware and disk storage. Uh, and for those of you who don't, like, you and I, did, you, you, you went to school and, like, did computers at the time of, like, floppy disks, right? Yes, yeah, my, my earliest elementary school, like, computer classes was, yeah, still floppy disk era. Yes, I also had some floppy disks. I think our first home computer did floppy disks. Um, this is even before floppy disks. This was one of those, like, the size of a vinyl record disks mm -hmm. that had, like enough memory to store a contemporary word file and right. nothing else yeah absolutely so that's what those ran on at the time 
They took an eternity to work, they got incredibly physically hot, and they struggled to do much beyond the most basic editing features. We're talking like crossfades were considered the height of technology. Yeah. Andy, I'm going to ask you to put a drop of some kind of crossfade in this. You got it. Awesome. You just heard that was the height of this technology at the time um, prior to this point and honestly a good while through the 80s and early 90s so even past the invention of these digit of a, the first digital audio workstation recording and editing on tape was still considered the industry standard that process meant that you needed large expensive tape machines full editing bays, reels upon reels of physical tape that would be physically cut and glued together, and the labor of multiple assistants on top of the engineer. And actually the best thing I can I can think to describe that is anyone who's seen Fight Club probably remembers there's a scene where Edward Norton is describing Brad Pitt and one of his jobs being a film splicer. It's it's film, not audio tape, but it's the same basic idea of like yeah. you literally cut and tape together the thing where you want to make an edit. You look for it, you can see these little dots come into the upper right-hand corner of the screen. In the industry, we call them cigarette burns. Exactly. And um, I, I don't know how many people in our audience might have seen it. In the Get Back documentary uh, that was released on Disney+, Plus, I think a year or so ago, there is a point where they are um, moving studios and they are sitting here like, okay, how are we gonna move our tape equipment? And they literally have George Harrison like bring his tape machine that he bought for his home studio. Mm. They bring it in in order to actually record the album in that space. And they make a point of being like, we have to move this very carefully. It is a very large, this thing is like bigger than an up against the wall piano, this tape deck machine. Yeah. They say it costs 10,000 pounds. That's 10,000 pounds in 1968 money. And they're like moving it so gingerly because it's George's personal tape machine that he invested in. Sure. That's what it would take to, re and you have to remember that at that time, the recording, it was still like four track and eight track. It was the kind of thing where it was like, if you wanted more than eight instruments on this, you had to record multiple instruments and put them all on one track. That is how, in order to layer it properly. Right. That, and that still was that huge, that expensive, that complicated, and that delicate. And that was the standard until the early 90s. So after a very long 80s where digital input devices from Yamaha and Casio consistently improved, and early Macintosh computers got better and better at processing. Again, we start in 78 with the earliest, most arcane version of this, and it's too expensive and too unwieldy, and you basically need to almost like read a textbook to be able to run the damn thing. Throughout all of the 80s, we this, this improves by, by gradients. And again, 
This is also the time where, you know, you get synthesizers coming out. You get early digital pianos and digital input devices. Those start getting better and computers start getting better. And then finally, by the time you get to that early 90s, um, major studios actually started going digital. This is with the advent of Pro Tools. Um, which even today is still yeah. kind of an end industry standard. Like I've heard of Pro Tools in my professional life yeah. several times. Yeah, like any any most major um, audio producers, professional audio producers, most of them are running either Pro Tools or one of the other couple of like major ones. But most of them will still have Pro Tools. Pro Tools, Pro Tools was kind of the earliest one. This was revolutionary at the time, allowing for significantly more storage and individual tracks and far less physically intensive editing. And a thought that maybe isn't like so much surprising as like, yeah, it makes complete sense. That timeline lines up with home computer being a thing. Yeah. You know, it was really like the early 90s where you finally started to get like windows 92 yeah. coming out and being something that you could set up at home and upper that, middle class kids were starting to get like ex like and yes computers were expensive at the time they cost a little less than a car but they were the kind of thing that like you didn't necessarily have to be let, let, let's all just be on let, let, let's all just be clear bill gates's family was rich before he got rich yeah um and he got access to early, early computers because he was rich and because he had those connections. By the early 90s, people who weren't rich, but were decently well off, like again, upper middle class, they could afford early computers. Right, and you'd get the family computer. We weren't yet at the time where everybody is just getting a laptop. Exactly, yeah. So when I talk about the idea of storage and individual tracks, I want to be clear about something because prior to this stage, uh, if you've ever heard the terms um, working off the masters, as in using the master recordings yeah. for, for something, um, when we're talking about the masters, when we're talking about the stories of like Ray Charles owning his masters to his works, when Ray Charles was recording, owning your masters meant that you owned briefcases full of physical tape from your recording sessions. And you could literally fill entire storage rooms for with this shit. And people did. And people did. On top of that, when I talk about tracks, you're a Queen fan, yes? Yep. Okay, I'm assuming everyone here has heard the song Bohemian Rhapsody, maybe even seen the movie Bohemian Rhapsody and might remember the scene where they're recording that. In the farmhouse. And, and again, you have like the giant, it looks like a fucking refrigerator and it has the whirling tape deck on it. Yeah. Yes. So I mentioned earlier putting multiple things on one track. The way that they did that, they had a four track recorder. There are 64 vocal tracks on Bohemian Rhapsody. And the way that they did that was literally going, okay, we're going to record Freddie, we're going to record Brian, we're going to record Roger, and we're going to record uh, an extra Freddie in the background vocal range, because John wasn't really singing on it. 
So you had the four of them and you'd record each of them on the four track. And then you would splice all four of those tracks onto one track and then you'd record it again. And then that would be a second track. You'd record it again. That would be a third track. Record again, that'd be a four track. Then you take that four track and you'd condense that down to one track. Mm -hmm. And that way you could layer those 64 vocal parts in order to get that operatic section for Bohemian Rhapsody. That meant so fucking many takes. Yeah. Because even not counting mistakes, that is 64 individual tracks that subs that each need to be spliced down and then recut physically by hand. Because I I suspect you might know this. Who was the audio engineer for Night of the Opera? Uh, I don't actually remember, but A Night at the Opera... I do not recall off the top of my hand. Okay, but... so not Andy Wallace. No, it was not. That was before Andy Wallace's time. Um, personnel. Uh, Roy Thomas Baker was the... Per Mike Stone. Oh, Mike Stone. <laughs> the way Alex's eyebrows just shot up. Oh, God. Uh, see, I mostly know Mike Stone as the producer for Journey. Okay. Like all your big Journey tracks, that was Mike Stone. Mike Stone was a genius audio engineer, and he was very good at this shit. But again, he was well-trained technically in the actual, okay, we got to cut this and we got to splice this. Like, you had to physically be good with your fingers yeah. at doing this shit to be a good audio engineer. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of that was also hiring good assistants, because if you fucked up the tape, you fucked up the tape. And the tape was one of the most expensive parts of production. Right. So this, you couldn't save your master copy and then open up a new file and go master v1 and futz around with it and know that your master was still safe somewhere exactly and you know you could say re-record it over onto a backup tape but every time you recorded it like that you damaged it a little bit it's like making xeroxes of xeroxes of xeroxes you lose clarity you lose top end you lose it gets blurrier it gets harder to hear it sounds like it literally sounds like it's farther away right. every time you make a copy of it right that's why this was such a delicate process and that's why in order to do it it was let's be honest it used to cost so fucking much in order to make an album now with a digital audio workstation with something like that you know if it's all in pro tools if it's all computer based you have as many individual tracks as the computer can handle the amount of data that an individual track takes a few megabytes you could there are literally digitally created tracks that are hundreds of individual instrument lines and you can click and zero them out you can delete them you can control v them yeah you can do all of this stuff right there in the digital and and granted at the time you switched from going off of physical tape to hard drives and even hard drives in the 90s let's let's be honest they're not what they are now where they're just like you, you what what does a terabyte cost 18 cents like yeah i mean the uh the drive we record this very show to is a terabyte drive i have never needed to um 
unload footage from it. We've been doing this for like four years, four now? years now, and we still haven't reached the max. And this thing cost me 20 bucks and is smaller than a postcard. Yeah. So with like, admittedly with that budget that you'd get from a studio upgrading to digital, any kind of storage, even CD-ROM storage, yeah. which I don't even think is what they were using. I think they were still using expanded hard drive storage, but even CD-ROM storage was gonna be cheaper than reel-to-reel -reel tape. So their ability to lower that cost so extensively was a huge revolution for the music industry. For producers, suddenly the limitations were a completely different thing. They didn't have those same kinds of limitations as far as, well, we only have this much tape and this many tracks and this many labor hours and laborers. Because think about this, Mike Stone had a team of audio assistants to help him with his cutting and splicing. So now imagine if you are a band just starting out or a music act just starting out. Imagine you're paying for your studio time yourself. You know, when Black Sabbath recorded their first album in 1969, they did so, they had two days of studio time that they paid for, that, that I think was paid for out of pocket by their record label. Mm -hmm. But it was seriously like a few hundred pounds. And they were basically like, okay, it's guitar, bass, drums, vocals. So we're gonna record guitar, bass, drums, vocals on this four track. And we've got two days to record it, and then we'll give it to our audio guy, and it'll just be on his stack for the week. And granted, it's a great album. It sounds fantastic. But those were the limitations. Now those limitations are a very different situation. Right, and so just to move us along, like, now we do this on my laptop. Exactly. We, we do this on my laptop, I cart around, I use Adobe software, and we just, we can make this happen and this is less intensive than recording an album but if we had to we could record music onto this very computer we record this podcast onto exactly for most of our listeners at least the ones who aren't recording musicians uh podcasters or in professional production the daw they'll be most familiar with is garage band right if you have a MacBook or an iPhone or an iPad, you have GarageBand, which is a standard software that comes stock on all Apple devices. And it is a real life DAW that while not the industry or professional standard, is damn good enough to do pro level work in. And I'll, and I, and I'll circle back to that. The reason I love ubiquitous DAWs, D let me be clear. DAWs as a concept aren't something I get super excited about. Mm. The ones I've used, I barely understand. I barely know how to use this shit. And there is something real and legitimate to be said, this is a criticism, for what was lost in the transition to digital. The shifting away from studio space as a necessary instrument in music recording. I listen to a lot of hyper-pop music, and a lot of that is just people punching stuff in on MIDI. Right. You know, I, I listened to the last Charlie Puth album, and the man is a genius. He really is. But he's just basically taking his MIDI keyboard and his voice and his probably, you know, good quality editing software, good quality microphone, good quality equipment, and just 
putting these songs together. And they're great songs, but they aren't what some songs recorded in a studio to tape would have been, at least not in terms of vibe. Sure. So there, and there's a loss of the really useful limitations in production that were forced by tape. Again, I love that first Black Sabbath album. And it was recorded in two days for less than a thousand pounds. And like almost edited as an afterthought. Like, but what I love, what I do love about it, those criticisms understood is plain and simple democratization. Ableton, Pro Tools, and Logic are the industry standard DAWs. All of them can be had legitimately, no stealing, um, for anywhere from $200 to $1,000, depending on which one you get and at what level. They all have different, differing levels of um, kind of pro or professional or whatever you have. Um, this can be prohibitively expensive for non-pros. Mm -hmm. If you are going to try and do this professionally, you should really try and invest in one of, if not multiples of those. Right. Um, but again, you can access free open source DAWs or GarageBand if you're using the, let's be honest, fairly ubiquitous Apple products. Again, this is on your iPhone, right? If you're listening to this on an iPhone, you have a DAW on your iPhone yeah. right now. And you can use your mic on your iPhone and you can buy maybe you can buy probably $30 worth of adapter technology off of, you know, whatever your preferred online dealer is. Uh, and even if that's Amazon, sure. And you could get started podcasting or recording music. Hell, if you got an iPhone, I was about to say you don't even need an iPhone, but if you got an iPhone, you can just upload something to your iCloud. Yeah. Pull up your MacBook and, and edit what you recorded on your phone. Like yeah. it is that simple. And that means that for the cost of a computer or even just a smartphone and whatever input devices you want to use, basically anyone has access to the, to the creative abilities that used to need a full-on professional studio in order for you to do any of this stuff. It used to be like... It is a plot point in the movie Eight Mile that B-Rabbit, Eminem's character, is trying to save money to get studio time so that he can record a demo. Look, I'm telling you, man, I'm on my way. And I'm taking you with me. You're the franchise, baby. The franchise? Yeah. I'm taking a fucking bus to work, man. I think that movie came out in 2004. If that, that movie would not work in 2022 because there's no reason that he cannot record a fucking demo on his iPhone. Right, sure. It would not be that difficult. And this, this isn't even just limited to music. We started this podcast on very basic equipment. My first mic was a cheap USB one that I was gifted for Christmas. And my almost decade-old MacBook with GarageBand. Phineas and Billie Eilish didn't use much more when they were putting together her earliest recordings. For those of you who don't know, Phineas is Billie Eilish's brother. He's also her co-songwriter and producer. Right. And they did, they, they, Billie Eilish blew up off of SoundCloud, but those early Billie Eilish records, and honestly, a lot of the tracks on her first album still use large chunks of stuff that they recorded this way. They recorded it on a MacBook with a mic that they just bought off of Amazon. And the rest of it was Phineas with a fucking like Casio keyboard just playing shit. I have that keyboard. 
Hell, the beat for Rihanna's Umbrella, and I'm going to ask you to play like the oh, first couple bars of Umbrella of here. Of course. That drum, that beat is based off of a stock garage band beat that The Dream made moderate edits to. The Dream was the guy who created that beat and is a co-songwriter for that song. You have my heart and we'll never be worlds apart. Maybe in magazines, but you still be my star. But he took a stock, I think it was, I think it was called like R&B Beat 2 or something like that. Stock garage band beat. He basically added some reverb, did messed with the compression levels on it, and I think added a little bit of an echo. And that is the beat for Umbrella. The, the ubiquity of this technology has almost killed the studio industry. I as, say as we knew it, for yes. sure. Which has contributed hugely to the diminishing of the record label industry. A lot of why record labels have had as much power as they have has been because they controlled studios. Studios were so expensive that you couldn't afford studio time to record a demo, an EP, or an album unless you had the backing of a major label studio because they would have to invest that money for you to be able to be in the studio. Sure. Now, and this, this, is, this is basically my last point, we can debate how much of a good or bad thing that is. You know, it, it we, we can. The music industry had a lot of problems but seeing it go with what it's been replaced with, which is largely the kind of hyper indie Spotify driven, Spotify, Apple Music, to a lesser extent, title driven yeah. streaming model, um, record labels trying to pick up TikTok stars and, and do that say, shit. Yeah, the thing now is you have to be, you have to pick up the viral moment and capitalize that within the three weeks that you're actually viral as a TikTok song. Yeah, like I am not saying the current system is better. There are things that are better about it. There are things that are worse, but the old system was objectively bad. Sure. Very, very bad. And if you want to argue that music now is worse than music then, I'm I will happily have that argument with you. My Twitter handle is at a underscore x underscore r u i z. I'll say it at the end of the episode too. You will lose this argument, but I will <laughs> argue with you. I I will happily do that. But whether you think that's good or bad, the you cannot argue that the ability of more people to access more of this tech to create and learn and put material out there is for the best. There has never been a time, and, and, and I'll, I, I want to kind of close it out on this point, minus whatever you want to add to it, but there was a long time where there was basically two tiers of music act, as well as things, things in the podcast realm, like radio, radio or content curators. Yeah you had the people who were the national names, the highest rung of things. And you had the people who were low level doing it for fun. You had college radio and you had large market radio with the tiniest little bits in the middle. You had huge major label acts and you had low level indie to honestly just kind of bar band tour level. Yeah, And you didn't have a whole lot in between. Now, you have a greater ability, if you want to, and you are able to actually invest into this, and I understand privilege is a factor here, but there has never been a time where it has been more possible to make a living 
as a creative person. You're not gonna be rich. You are almost certainly not gonna be yeah. rich, but you can live a comfortable working to middle-class lifestyle as a content creator more easily now than at literally any other point in history. And if you are legitimately interested in content creation, in being an artist of some kind, or being an intellectual, that is an objectively good thing. And ubiquitous DAWs are maybe the entire nexus point for that very positive, very good shift. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And it's it's true for every creative medium out there, you know. It's it's easier You can to shoot do, a movie on an iPhone now. You can shoot a movie on an iPhone. You can make a webcomic on your iPad and, and put it up on, on Twitter or Pixiv or whatever. Um, yeah, we've we've widened the pool, but as such it's gotten more shallow by necessity. But the thing that I support about that is the people who have what I consider to be the more noble motivations of actually creating art and making something rather than getting rich off of that art. It's easier for the people who want to make the art to do the thing. It's harder for anybody to get rich at it nowadays, I would argue, because there is so much more competition in any creative space. But I've never been the kind of person who says you should do something because you'll get rich at it. So, yeah, no, I completely agree. And and I don't think I ever would have thought about this as, as something to talk about with such adoration, despite it being you know, something that I've basically been around my entire adult life. So thank you for this very lovely topic, dear boy. You are very welcome. Shall we move on to something Kind of infuriating. Something very unlovely. Um, yeah, I I struggled to figure out what I wanted to talk about for this episode, but eventually it hit me. And I don't really have a question because the only one I could think to ask is a pretty obvious answer. I would like to talk about the story of American actor Brendan Fraser. And my hate is what happened to him. Yeah. So the title of this hate is The Fall of Brendan Fraser. Anyone in their 30s or older probably needs no introduction. For a good chunk of like six, seven years, Brendan Fraser was an A-list Hollywood actor in the late 90s and early aughts, mm -hmm. perhaps best well known for playing the leading man Rick O'Connell in the Mummy franchise, um, which coincidentally, and I will not take argument on this, is a top three action comedy of all time. I don't know if I'd call it an act. But you were actually at Hamanatra. I was there. You swear. Every damn day. No, I didn't mean that. Either. I know what you meant. I was there. Action comedy, but that has more quotable jokes in it than some movies that just bill themselves as straight up comedies. Mm -hmm. I, I, I I will argue it is a frequently very funny movie. Yeah. Is this going to turn into a fight of what a goddamn comedy is, Alex? Uh, that, that might be an off-mic one. Please continue. <laughs> um, but Frazier was also well-known for George of the Jungle, which was his breakout role. Classic. Bedazzled and just numerous other projects. Younger movie buffs will have heard his name tied to Darren Aronofsky's upcoming film, The Whale, mm -hmm. for which he is already generating Oscar buzz, and Martin Scorsese's next crime epic, Killers of the Flower Moon, in which Frazier will be starring alongside Robert De Niro. 
But where has he been for the past 20 years? Mm-hmm. You know what? I, I will turn around and I will ask a question. I, I assume your favorite Brendan Fraser movie is The Mummy. But maybe I'm wrong. You know, it, I think it depends on the mood you catch me in. Because I... I deeply loved George of the Jungle. That was, we owned both The Mummy and George of the Jungle when I was a kid. And we watched them both, like, a lot. Is it fair to say that in a, in a we're going to Blockbuster or in your case, um, home. Superstar video. Superstar video. We're going to Superstar video for the weekend. And we're going to Superstar video to pick out our movies for the weekend. And you see Brendan Fraser's face on the side of a movie you go oh this is probably good uh it certainly wasn't a turnoff it yeah. was I, I will say um this is a bad movie but it had brendan fraser in it crash was a movie where i was excited to see brendan fraser in it right and he plays a terrible person in it ironically i think the last movie in which he was trying to get oscar buzz yeah but it, it was i mean it was a best picture winner but you know it's a bad movie um i remember him in airheads yeah that was also not a great movie, but <laughs> his first real role is in Sino Man, which is a cult film. Like that's a, he, that's a fun movie. Yeah, that's a fun movie. Um, he's not he's not great in it, but he's also very young in it. Exactly. I mean, it, that truly is like the first actual film he made was Encino Man. Um, but yeah, Airheads. He's in Monkey Bone, which is a phenomenally underrated comedy that nobody's heard of. Um, I remember him on Scrubs. He's got a like oh, God, three yeah. episode, like three random episodes on Scrubs that are the last one of which is absolutely heartbreaking. Yeah, absolutely. One of the best like guest characters on Scrubs. Yeah. And so, and, and then, and then mm-hmm. I want to paint a picture. Imagine a young high school Andy going on to the nerdy message boards that he goes on to and seeing Brendan Fraser's name and face come up over and over again in sort of a meme format. And this is like 2009, so you're sitting there being like, I haven't seen Brendan Fraser do really anything in a while. And I haven't seen Brendan Fraser do a good movie in even longer because like, you could argue... The last good movie he made is 2001's The Mummy Returns at this point in time. And, like, kind of wondering, well, what happened? I like this guy. I, I, I miss him. I miss seeing his face. And so doing a little bit of research again, we're talking, like, circa 2008, 2009, and learning about a tumultuous divorce to Afton Smith with an associated $900,000 per year alimony agreement. Mm -hmm. And it seems like a pretty simple answer. Oh, shit, this this dude got taken to the cleaners. What a bitch of an ex-wife who, like, makes it so this poor actor man I love doesn't, can't, like, afford to be an actor anymore because he has to give all his money to Afton Smith. And the rough part was that he got divorced at the time that... He was starring in The Mummy and George of the Jungle and was a Hollywood leading man. And, you know, that naturally does wane for most people. Yeah. So he wasn't going to be able to keep up with those. No, absolutely. And so it just seemed like, oh, my God, what a tragic, like, this This is right up there with Jamie Presley divorcing Nick Cage. And, and that's why Nick Cage has to make all the garbage movies he makes. Oh, wait a minute. I just thought of something. As Nick Cage shows us with his tumultuous divorce to Jamie Presley, 
Usually that makes an actor work more and more on shittier and shittier movies. And and for the record, it's not like Brendan Fraser disappeared. He very much did seem to like fall into that kind of trend where he's making movies like Furry Vengeance and just a bunch of like the nut job and, and crap that no one's ever heard of or cares about. And very it's like, forgettable stuff. Very forgettable stuff. Oh, what a lamentation. Oh, oh, Brendan Fraser, how I miss you as like an A-list action star. Oh, well, I'm going to go not think about it anymore. And then we get the real answer. Mm -hmm. In 2018, when Fraser spoke out about his sexual assault from then president of the Hollywood Associated Foreign Press, Philip Burke, which took place in 2003. Coincidentally, right around the time, it seemed like Frazier just sort of... Fell off the map. Fell off the map. I have decided I don't want to share the graphic quote on this podcast. But suffice to say, there was a graphic depiction from Frazier. And, and more, more quote-unquote responsible people will qualify all this as being alleged... But we believe the victims. So there is a, a graphic quote of precisely what happened to Brendan Fraser at a party in 2003, which caused him to fall into a deep depression while simultaneously leading to him being softly blackballed from first the Golden Globes, which is an event that is put on by the Hollywood Associated Foreign Press. Again, the entity for which his assaulter, Philip Burke, was the president of. Mm -hmm. And once he started getting, stopped getting invited to the Golden Globes, he also was just slowly forgotten and dropped off by Hollywood. Yeah. He does have a quote talking about the incident where it's just like, yeah, you know, you're all of a sudden your phone stops ringing and yeah. you don't really know why and you can't really get it to start again. Yeah. I'm... So I'm just taking a glance at some of his movies, especially in that in-between period. Like, in 2003, Looney Tunes Back in Action came out, which was it's not a good movie. Very forgettable. But it was kind of... It, I remember, like, ordering that on video and on demand in 2003 because, like, just... Brendan Fraser and Bugs Bunny, this perfectly aligns with my 12-year-old interests. Yeah. Uh, Crash was 2004. Uh, Journey to the Center of the Earth. Do you remember that? I do. That was 2008. I know of something else that I don't see in your notes, but I know was also apparently a factor. Also in 2008, he did the third Mummies movie. Right. And that movie fucked him up bodily. Like, severely. And, and let's be clear, the first... Two Mummy movies happened at a time where he was, I, I mean, he was just over 30. Like, he was in his early to mid-30s and had been working as an actor for a while and was at an age and at a, at a space where he was able to keep up with the physical rigors of those kinds of roles. You think about what he looked like in George of the Jungle, like, that is a body that is achievable with hollywood resources yeah but you know not necessarily as maintainable over time um right and 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 by 2008 he was 40 and he was doing the 
as I recall, very boring The Mummy Tomb of the Dragon Emperor. Yeah, the very forgettable, very bad third mummy movie. I, I did see a quote in research where he says, like, yeah, I was being held together with duct tape and ice packs. Yeah, like he was he was trying to do like he didn't even do only all his own stunts for that, but he did like just doing any of the physical stuff in that, his body was just destroyed. And by the end of production, like he had trouble walking, he had horrendous back I think he had to have more than one back surgery. Like yeah. he was wrecked physically from that. And, and that is absolutely a factor. I, I didn't touch on it in my notes because, like, that's not the meat of what I hate. If this was no, just, not, but. if this was just, oh, yeah, Brendan Fraser pushed himself as a physical actor, he was pronounced legally dead on the set of The Mummy for a second. Like, I did not know that. He died for, a, like, a 60-second minute and then was revitalized. The, well, okay, so the reason I bring some of these um, post-2003 movies up yeah. is because you got to think, if this happened in 2003, every, like, okay, Looney Tunes Back in Action came out in 2003, so we probably filmed that the year before. Crash is 2004, probably filmed that the year before. At what point is he working past this event happening? If Tomb of the Dragon Emperor came out in 08, that means he's four years removed from this trauma. Right. And I don't know. I, there's something about this idea of a survival instinct where he's just trying to keep his career afloat. And in the course of doing that, he's got to be pushed to doing things that his body just physically is not there for. Yeah. And for the record, that divorce with Afton Smith that I thought was like the actual catalyst happened in 2007. Jesus. Happened four years after he was sexually assaulted. Okay, I did not know that. Yeah. All right. And, like, if you, again, if you just kind of track his career, he has, like, an uncredited, he's in, like, one scene of the second, or the first G.I. Joe movie, and then he really does enter his, like, furry vengeance, pawn shop chronicles, the nut job era yeah. there there was a really awful tv miniseries called texas rising where he plays texas folk hero billy anderson and like i remember seeing the trailer for that and going like oh my god it's brendan fraser hmm. what have you been up to and the man like takes if you just look at his imdb you're like oh brendan fraser took a break i wonder if he was raising his kids no brendan fraser got to a period where he could not be hired by Hollywood except for like shitty TV roles and all I'm, while owing a million dollars a year. Yeah. I'm looking at this furry vengeance and standoff were two things he was executive producer on. Cause he probably had to be, he yeah. probably had to fund those movies so that he could have a role. Yeah. Breakout was one, it was a direct to video movie that he was also a producer on. Like a lot of these are stuff that, and then I look at I look at the G.I. Joe movie that was produced by Steven Summers. Uh, or I'm sorry, Steven Steven Soderbergh. No, Steven Summers, never yeah. mind. And Steven Summers, as I recall, uh, you know, did the worked on the mummy. Right. So it was like a friend throwing him a role. Yeah. If this was just if it was if it was just his body breaking down and just a divorce, I wouldn't be making this hate i almost talked about the fall of val kilmer hmm. and then i looked into it and you know what happened to val kilmer 
he was a phenomenal asshole to anyone he ever worked on on set. And then he got throat cancer, which I didn't know until I researched it. But that's why you don't see Val Kilmer in movies anymore, is nobody wants to work with him. And the man it has a tracheotomy and is a survivor of throat cancer. Interesting. Okay. That's not enough to say, like, oh, my God, I hate what happened to Val Kilmer. Brendan Fraser, and, and to tie this back in, like, it's not just Brendan Fraser. This gets to the meat of it. Brendan Fraser's story is commonplace in the industry, regardless of gender. Mm-hmm. You know, this happened to Terry Crews. Yeah. This happened to Paz de la Huerta and all of the Weinstein victims. Mm-hmm. This beloved actor was sexually assaulted and then quietly blackballed from Hollywood while all this other shit was happening to him. And I can't state enough from like 1998 to 2003, this man was one of the most cherished, beloved Hollywood leading men imaginable. He, you could not think of a star higher than Brendan Fraser, he, action hero. Yeah, he was great for he was great for the four quadrant films. Yeah, he, he was he was someone that, uh, and and I think I've talked about four quadrant films before, but basically it's it's a metric that Hollywood uses to a certain degree to determine their audiences for stuff, and it's basically like young, young old. Um, and male female. Yeah. And four quadrant films means it's something that that appeals to all four of those intersections old like older males and younger males older females and younger females and brendan fraser movies could work for all four most of the ones that you and i recall most fondly are four quadrant films and he led them and beautifully so that's why so many goddamn millennials are like yo my bisexual awakening was fucking rick o'connell in the mummy (laughs) exactly yeah (laughs) And what I hate and lament is just that this happened, that this bright star of American cinema was assaulted and then turned aside. And, and, and we, the fans and people who love him, were robbed of what could have been the continuation prime of his career. Yeah. You know, Philip Burke didn't get canceled for this it became a scandal but philip burke didn't get fired until he got caught sending racist emails and then the hollywood foreign press kicked him out yeah i'm overjoyed that brendan fraser is having a career renaissance it started when he got the voice role of robot man in the in the 2019 doom patrol tv series and that was like a big thing of like oh holy shit he's he's Coming back and he's being he's being the voice of this character now. I know that was when I first started. Like that was the first point where I because I didn't I never watched Doom Patrol. I didn't care much for the Doom Patrol comics. But um, you know, I, I heard about it and it was like, oh yeah, and Brendan Fraser's in the Doom Patrol show, and I'm like the fuck's Brendan Fraser been up to? Exactly. All right. That really, like, that happened with everybody who remembered Brendan Fraser, which which uncovered this, like, deep cult of beloved fondness for the actor and, like, 
kind of got everybody back interested, made him a name people were talking about, and that has led to him getting cast in movies again. Getting cast in in good movies, mind you. The man got a six-minute standing ovation at Kane for the premiere of The Whale, which reportedly he was just beside himself, weeping tears of, like, embarrassed joy during because, like... Finally, Hollywood is fucking showing him love again. Mm. That's, that's, I just discovered it. That's where the hatred is. <laughs> that it takes him being in a Darren Aronofsky movie? Yes. <laughs> Nobody should have to work with Darren Aronofsky to earn respect. No. <laughs> and, and, and God damn it, Brendan Fraser didn't deserve to have things happen into his life where he felt like the love had left his life. Yeah. You know, that's what it is. Yeah. So I'm I'm thrilled that he's going to be in a, an Oscar bait role. I'm thrilled that he's going to be in a crime epic with Scorsese and De Niro. I I think we talked about this with the HBO thing. He was set to play Firefly in the Leslie Grace Batgirl film that got axed by HBO. So I was really looking forward to seeing bad guy Brendan Fraser that now who knows if we'll ever get that. Yeah. But I'm I'm happy that he is returning to the limelight and and getting the love that he never should have been denied. But God damn, do I hate that this happened to him and every other actor that this had happened to where it negatively affected their career and all the actors who never got their career in the first place because they were assaulted by some fucking old white monster. Yeah, I think... Um... No, I, I appreciate you talking about this. And, and really, it should be stated, like, Brendan Fraser is a really clear articulation of this larger problem. Yeah. And it's not just limited to him, but the fact that he is a white cis male actor who really did have some real endearment with popular culture and to see the fallout of this effect so strongly, the the act of empathy to look for or to, to encourage in anyone is not just to acknowledge what happened to Brendan Fraser, but to also acknowledge that this happens extensively, yes, to men, not just to women, yeah. but also happens to everybody, including and especially non-cis white males yeah and for every brendan fraser you have reams and scores of much less famous people who didn't get who, who didn't come from a place of being universally beloved and therefore we don't notice them yeah we don't notice that they have fallen out of the industry we don't see how they have not realize the potential there's no reason why had this certain chain of events not happened brendan fraser shouldn't have had a career in my brain like george clooney sure yeah because very similar like the thing is george clooney has made bad movies but george clooney was a like top of the throne leading man at close to the same time that brendan fraser was like nicholas cage See, I, I'm going to not say Nicolas Cage because Nicolas Cage and his financial exploits yeah. are a different monster. That's very fair. But I will say, Brendan Fraser, like, had he not had this handful of very particular bad things happen to him, 
There's no reason he couldn't have a career like George Clooney, where it's, I am the A-list Hollywood person for this long, and then I am going to choose to step back from that so that I can explore other endeavors, both philanthropically and within this industry, continue to act, but at this point I've solidified my legacy and I don't need to work to please everybody all the time. I can do a movie for the public and a movie for me. Right. And I have the power to dictate that. And what the hell? Maybe I'll produce a few things. Maybe I'll direct a few things. Maybe I will do other projects. Maybe I will entrepreneurize other stuff. Like, there's no reason Brendan Fraser couldn't have had exactly that same kind of career. But he didn't because he happened to have... And I don't even know. This kind of thing may have actually happened to George Clooney and he just was quiet. I don't know that for a fact. Sure. But Brendan Fraser dealt with these particular circumstances and did not respond well to them, had human reactions to them, and they robbed him of almost two decades of the kind of success that he really could have had, the kind of life and career that he really could have had. And it's because some old white dudes were powerful. Yeah. And how many Brendan Frasers, how many George Clooney's, how many whatever names have we lost to this power dynamic? Mm -hmm. Fuck this shit. Absolutely. As always, fucking old white evil men. Uh, shall we move on to our question? I think that's for the best. Okay. You want to read this one? You introduced the topic, so I feel like I should read this. However, I do want to point out that you found this on, um, I assume, relationships.txt. Yes, yes. My 22-year-old girlfriend is confusing me, this is from another 22-year-old man, with her kink. Last night, my girlfriend and I decided to test out a kink she discussed with me a few days ago. The way she explained it was that she, want, that she gets turned on by the idea of having sex with someone who seems completely bored. She said she wanted me to look uninterested and unimpressed while she went above and beyond to pleasure me. I really didn't understand what was so hot about that, but hey, I didn't judge. So I was there, looking bored as possible, while she was riding me like she just got released from prison. I yawned, played games on my phone, used some of her sex toys as action figures, etc. My girlfriend slowed down at some point and told me to stop being a dick. I laughed at first because I thought she was joking, which was a big mistake. She got off me and said of all the guys she's done the bored sex thing with, none of them were able to stay in character for that long. I was confused. I thought the point of the whole thing was to be bored, but according to my girlfriend, the point was to look bored, not actually be bored. I was even more confused after that line, but I apologize for whatever I did wrong. She managed to cool down eventually, but it took a lot from my side to convince her that I still enjoy sleeping with her. We continued having the sex. We continued having sex afterwards without any acting. It was quick. She didn't want to participate very much. She just wanted me to come and be done with it. Can anyone please explain how I am the bad guy here? Okay, so we need a name. We need a name. Uh, what's the situation of like uh... sexual exploit gone wrong? Yeah. Uh, have we done? Um... Have we done what's his face, the leading guy from American Pie? I feel like we have. Okay. Jason Biggs' character, Jim. Yeah. I feel like we've done Jim. If not, I know we've done some American Pie shit. Before. We have. Um. Hmm. 
kink that didn't work out. This feels like something out of American Pie. This feels my thought. See, the first thought I had was, um, and any of you who haven't watched New Girl, there is a plot line where one of the characters, Schmidt, tries to uh, have an affair with his boss and she gets really bored with him. Have we done Schmidt? I don't think we've. I think we've done new. We've done Jess. We haven't done Schmidt. Okay, then I'm. I'm. This also feels like a Schmidt situation. Okay, I don't remember Schmidt, the name of the boss. Schmidt would commit to the bit. Yeah, I don't. I don't know the name of the boss, and I don't know if I want to know the name of the boss. I think I just want to be like Schmidt and Schmidt's boss. Oh, I think. I think this could even apply to Schmidt and Cece for reasons I will explain in my answer. Interesting. Okay. All right, I'm down for it. It's Schmidt, and um, for lack of a better, uh, for, for lack of anything else, let's say it's Cece, but Schmidt, okay. But I am definitely for real having sex with this girl right here to completion. You read the question, so I can go ahead and give the first answer here. Sure. Um, Schmidt, my, my, my guy. Um, I'm going to say up front, you are not the bad guy here. Because with the situation that you have encountered, um, it sounds as though Cece wanted to communicate a kink she has, which is great, but then did not properly elaborate on her expectations for this. There is a legitimate kind of kink where you have one person trying to do something to another person and get them to eventually break. And the idea is at some point there will be a break. There is a uh, reason, it is reasonable in some kinks for you to want to experience that. They experience that idea of, oh, well, I am, I am so um, irresistible in this situation that my partner just couldn't help but stop being bored and break character, etc., etc. This is th that is a reasonable thing to uh, to set up. But what happened was Cece was so fucking confident in herself and her quote unquote abilities that she felt she didn't even need to fucking communicate this to communicate this expectation and just went, oh, well, you know, he'll break because I'm just that good. Guess what, Cece? It doesn't fucking work that way for everybody. Sure, for some of your previous partners, maybe for all of your previous partners, it might have. But that does not change the fact that it is your responsibility to communicate your desires, your expectations in a space of kink. Yeah. And anyone who is listening to this and goes, well, doesn't that like ruin it? Or doesn't that like ruin the moment? No, read more about kink before you enter into it, yeah. you fucks. This ruins the moment. This situation ruins the moment, clearly. And I, I completely agree. This is, this is a function. The only thing you could say Schmidt did wrong was not probe more deeply, but I'll say it's not exactly on Schmidt to probe more deeply for what CC proposed as CC's play kink scenario, whatever you want to have it. There should have been a very in-depth conversation about, well, what does bored look like to you? And CC probably should have volunteered that this has been something CC has done before and that there is a expected way for this to go down yeah 
everybody can then suspend their disbelief in the moment enough to enjoy the moment. Yeah. Clearly, <laughs> without getting too anatomically graphic here, clearly Schmidt was not actually that bored. No. Um, but, it yeah, it's hard to really pin everything on this. This is a unfortunate miscommunication that really I put on the feet of Cece as being the one to blame for it. Yeah, like, could Schmidt had asked more questions? Yes, absolutely. But it is Cece's kink. It is Cece's situation that she has experience with. It is Cece's desire. Therefore, Cece should be setting the terms and Schmidt should be agreeing to them or disagreeing to them or adding to them or subtracting to them based on his comfort level and what he finds acceptable. Right. That is the point. If you're going to explore a kink, you have to talk it through all the way through. It would be like, let me use a different example. Like, and and this is far more basic because this isn't really kink based. Let's just say you're having sex with somebody for the first time and you one one or the other of you has certain parameters about where ejaculation goes. If you are someone who vehemently, because it's just what gets you off, you as the um, you know receiving end person here, um, and I'm using obviously very neutral, yeah, very neutral terms here. But if you are the receiving person and you really really want to be come into came into come into um my mother listens to this podcast i know it's all um, i can think about right now um you can't be upset if your partner pulls out and finishes not inside of you if it's not something you have explicitly asked for right now if it's the other way around and it's something you definitely don't want to happen and your partner does there's a little bit of an argument there of just like, okay, well, maybe you could have asked ahead of time before just going and doing that because one of those is, you know, arguably more risky. But the point is, the lesson here is all about in either scenario, you talk through that even just a little bit before you actually get started with this shit. That is doubly, triply more important in kink scenarios because kink inherently is a question of vulnerability. Right. And you are being vulnerable with your partner when you explore. And I don't care what kink that is. I don't care if that's underwear. I don't care if that's feet. I don't care if that's pissing. I don't care if that's impact play. In all of these, there is a level of vulnerability. That's what makes them kink. The thing that Cece desires that she didn't say was to be so... was. was the perceived ability to be able to be better, to be so good that it, it it shatters this boredom in the partner. Which is a valid kink. Right, and is not what she said. Exactly. So you all this to say, Schmidt, you are not the bad guy here. I don't think there is a bad guy here. It really just comes down to, and this is the lesson we should all take away from this, you have to communicate with your partner. You especially have to communicate with your partner about sexual things, and you especially, especially need to communicate with your partner thoroughly from point A to point B 
maybe even before point A and bef and after point Z, as far as prior care and after care, about what it is you are looking for, needing, wanting, and wanting to avoid. You need those open streams of communication. Otherwise, you are going to have a shitty sex life. Yeah. And there are a lot of people who live their lives in relationships. They are married for decades even, who have very shitty sex lives because neither of them know how to fucking talk to each other. You're 22. Learn these lessons now. Yeah. It, it seems like this won't be... It seems like this is not an insurmountable problem for Schmidt and CC. It, it, I don't love the way CC acted afterwards, but the fact that she still continued to engage, I guess, isn't... Doesn't communicate that, like, there's a serious, deep, you're-in-trouble problem here. Uh, yeah, but the fact that she just wants it to be done with now shows that she is sexually closing herself off. Sure. In a vulnerability circumstance, which sure. is... Granted, if you want to do that for your safety, especially for a little while, that's very normal. But you have to engage with this shit. Right. I just mean to say I, I see hope for these kids and their relationship. Hopefully... It involves this exact communication and a deeper understanding. And hell, it sounds like there needs to be some research. Yeah. And and looking into that and figuring that out. So Schmidt didn't really do anything wrong here, but hopefully together Schmidt and Cece can educate themselves and, and be safer about communicating their desires in the future. Reading recommendation, Emily Nagoski's Come As You Are. Buy it. Check it out from a library. Pick it up. Great read. Both of you should read it. Absolutely. And so that's been it for Love-Hate Relationship. If you have a question of a relationship nature, and, and as this question pertains, I don't think this is the first time we've had a graphic sex question, but clearly... Oh, not by a long shot. Yeah. <laughs> we're clearly comfortable enough with your graphic sex questions <laughs> to uh, talk about them and to call it as we see it. Um, you can send any question, one you're, vulnerable about, one you're vulnerable about, one you're not so vulnerable about, one with a partner, one without a partner, one with a, a family member or loved or, or, or beloved pet. Hopefully those aren't graphic sex questions. Mm -hmm. um, you can send whatever your questions are to lovehaterelationshippodcast at gmail.com where we promise we'll read them. That's right. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or even TuneIn Radio. Hey, Mom. Um, I'm very sorry. Um, I am very sorry for who I am as a person <laughs> sometimes. Um, <laughs> you can rate and or review us on any and or all of those platforms. Uh, and, you know, you can follow us on Twitter at LHRPod. That's L-H-R-P-O-D, where we'll be tweeting about um, all manner of the things that we've talked about. We've almost done 100 episodes of this show. So we have a lot of things we could tweet about, and eh, I think it's just going to devolve into a whole lot of Simpsons after the last episode. Oh, yeah. Anyway, um, or two episodes ago. Um, but you can follow us there and uh, send us your questions. Either they're yours or you see them online and you just want to wanna get our opinion on it. Um, yeah, it's a good time over there. Do I do something after that? <laughs> Almost 100 episodes. 
I think you I think you end earlier is what it is. That's the point. We've done this so often that we just kind of riff a little bit. Yeah. Uh, no, the next thing we say is I talk about my other podcast, Cult Fiction, which you shouted out at the beginning of this. And That's right. Which I do do with the, which I do with the incomparable Stephanie Johnson, where we watch all manner of cult films. Barbarian probably won't be one of them because it's very spooky and also like is very properly rated right now. But we watch cult films of all varieties, and you can find cult fiction everywhere you can find this show. You can find me, Andy Bowell, on Twitter, at JoeVocop2113. And also on Twitter, you can find my other uh, account where I show all my Warhammer and miniature exploits. That is Andy's underscore minis. The most recent thing I painted was a model Michael Myers, which I have then gifted to Alex as the Halloween superfan that he is. And I actually got to shout this out uh, because I just went on your Twitter to see if you had posted a photo of this. Uh, And I haven't been on Twitter, so I would have probably seen it ahead of time. But this Michael Myers is absolutely fucking gorgeous. And Andy posted photos of them on October the 25th. So look up Andy's underscore minis and scroll to October the 25th. And you will see the little Michael Myers that he bought and painted and gifted to me. And I am so happy about. But where can people find you? They can find me on Twitter and Instagram and TikTok and chess.com and lie chess at a underscore x underscore r-u-i-z and again please 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 if you disagree with me about whether now music is worse than old music because i guarantee you it is not worse it is just different and i will win this fight but if you want to fight me um come at me bro and not bro um and uh yeah that's the episode that's the episode uh, <laughs> tell your enemies as ever please i can do the outro andy i can, let me do it all right thanks for listening y'all as ever please tell your enemies <laughs> 97 episodes and we're, we're falling apart the seams. <laughs> <laughs>